Hello? Is that Frank? Yes. Hi, Frank. This is Jimmy Hoffa. Yeah, yeah. Glad to meet you. Well, glad to meet you, too, even if it's over the phone. I heard you paint houses. Yes, yes, sir, I, I do. I do, and I, uh, I also do my own carpentry. Welcome to Cut to Black, a real history special. This is a crossover between two of our Shows What You Know podcasts. On Cut to Black, we discuss The Sopranos. On Real History, we dig into the historical context of movies and TV. This episode bridges the gap between both podcasts, as we'll be using Scorsese's The Irishman as a jumping-off point to discuss the formation of the Mafia in the US. So, whether you're hearing this on our Cut to Black feed or Real History, I believe there will be something interesting in it for you. I'm Jacob Burrows, and I've watched every episode of The Sopranos. And I'm Michael Tynan, I'm, and I'm lucky enough to have done the same. I'm Mark Bell, I've also seen every episode of The Sopranos. Uh, obviously, we're not exactly talking about The Sopranos, but I think if we did a real history episode about The Sopranos, it would be very similar to a real history episode on The Irishman, because in The Irishman, we're talking about, you know, how all this came together. And if you haven't seen The Sopranos, in the very first episode, um, our main character, Tony, talks about coming in at the end of something. He feels like there was this great thing, and he's kind of at the tail end of it. And that's a metaphor for America, it's a metaphor, well, the American dream, all these things. But more specifically, the actual literal thing he's talking about is the mafia. And how did it end up in this place it is there? How did it end up in the place it is in The Irishman? Um, Obviously, we're using The Irishman as a jumping-off point. I don't think it's necessary to have watched it, but I also think anyone who's watched every episode of The Sopranos has probably seen The Irishman, so I wouldn't worry too much about it. Um, Can you tell us a bit more about this film, The Irishman, Michael? Yeah, of course. So, first of all, if you haven't seen it, watch it, although you will, like a lot of these films, need a a full afternoon. It's 209 minutes. Mm. Schedule an intermission for yourself. (laughs) Yeah, no, do. I mean, every person I asked about The Irishman before I watched it said... It's long. They didn't have any other feedback on it. They just said it was long, and so I just watched it two different nights, and I loved it, and I didn't think it was too long, so, yeah. Uh, Well, this is it, and it came out in, I think, November 2019, so just Mm. gone. It's proven very, very successful on Netflix, although, like you said, many people actually watch it as a miniseries and pause it after every 40 minutes or something like that. Yeah. Um, It's directed by Martin Scorsese, um, and... It's written by Stephen Zalian, who, as f- I didn't pronounce that right, but anyway, you're, you're used to that. There'll be a lot of that in this episode yeah, as well. Yeah, I think we'll awesome. Italian names, right? But he basically, he would have, ri- he would have written for Schindler's uh, List, and he also would have written for Gangs of New York. So he has worked with Scorsese oh. in the past. Mm. Moneyball as well, uh, written with Aaron Sorkin and American Gangster, and the English That's version of The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Exactly. And it's uh, based on... Uh, phrase you're going to hear a lot it's based on a book called i heard you paint houses uh by charles brandt came out in about 2004 and it's based on it's a general history of say 1950 uh, from sheeran's life frank sheeran who we're going to be discussing uh for the majority of this podcast um and it's based around interviews that frank sheeran did in his old age at a nursing home. Yeah, which uh, uh, leads us into, if you want a one-sentence summary of this yeah. film, I would describe it as, this is something we always do if you're new, uh, I would describe it as an aging hitman looks back at how he was entangled with the mafia and became the link 
between the mob and a prolific union leader eventually having to make a deadly choice between the two. Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Thank you. Now you don't need to watch three hours of film. (laughs) It's basically it. (laughs) I mean, you should be writing the taglines for a studio, right? Thank you. Well, well, one day, one day. uh, The podcasting business is just earning me too much money, Mark. I have no reason to to make a career change. It also currently has a very healthy 96% on uh, the aggregate website, uh, Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, so it's overwhelmingly positive reviews. And if you haven't seen the film, watch it. And the book itself is also brilliant. Like the, It's just the, the amount of colorful anecdotes and, and funny little scenes, as well as horrific brutality. Yeah, Great mix. So the, the story obviously follows Frank to a large degree, but we're going to sort of, as we often do, uh, step back further and look at how did this situation arise before Frank entered the scene. So what is the history of... Well, the mob. Is that the right word, Mark? Well, yeah, to be honest, probably um, there there are several different ways to refer to this. This thing of these. ours? This thing of ours, yeah. yeah Cosa Nostra. Um, there's different ways to refer to it. The, look, the, 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 the term the mob is more of a um, kind of a catch-all term that doesn't... Um, Distinguish ethnic groups. Yeah. Often we'll f- refer to it as the mafia. We talked about the Sopranos earlier, so we we'd say the Sopranos are mafia family. They're not actually technically mafia. Well, so, I mean, anyone who's watched recently watched the last season of the Sopranos can tell you that they're nothing but a glorified crew. Really, they're, they're nothing. <laughs> exactly right. Exactly. No proper Don wears shorts. All right. <laughs> <laughs> he fucking Bobby's number two. Um, yeah. Yeah, but the uh, in order to be mafia, you, you technically you should be Sicilian. Mm. The Soprano crew are, are Camorra. They're they're Neapolitan, so that's that's a, that's a different group. They're from Naples. But the the idea of the mob, the name, the mob, just kind of refers to any organized crime gang. Um, New York is, is is kind of the starting point for a lot of this stuff in the U.S. Um, some of that is just down to its nature as a kind of a hub of immigration, as it's always been, but especially in the 19th century. Um, there was obviously big-scale uh, immigration to New York from Ireland and from uh, Europe, Eastern Europe, um, and Italy. Yeah. Um, poor but, regions. Poor basically. regions, yeah, yeah. So southern Italy particularly. And in southern Italy now, where, where the organized crime still persists to a large degree, there's kind of three principal groups. One of them is the Mafia, one of them is the Camorra. There's another one which, look, I am going to murder the pronunciation of this, but I've heard it referred to as Nangretta, which is in Calabria. They're actually regarded as the most powerful uh, hmm. crime group in Italy right now. Anyway, that's all kind of besides the point. Um, the immigrants that came into New York, they kind of fit into a pre-existing gang structure that existed. You referenced Scorsese's movie earlier, Gangs of New York. The the, the idea of gangs fighting over territories um, and over the, like literally going, having street battles with each other, that was persistent in the 19th century in, in, in Manhattan and new ways of immigration fit into that. Um, you had areas of the city which are, you know, quite hip and, and popular and fashionable now like the Lower East Side, but the Lower East Side was hotbed of Italian, Irish and Jewish immigrants there were street gangs everywhere. As Scorsese, depicted in West Side Story. Yes, indeed. But Scorsese and, and De Niro themselves uh, were actually are actually from one of these neighborhoods, Tribeca, in, in, in New York. And while they didn't run in the same kind of gangs, they, they were aware of each other in their childhood, believe it or not. Um, but anyway, that, that's, that's all to say that uh, the, the, the American mafia or mob is a, it's a pretty interesting story. Some of it is brought about accidentally by the US government's actions hmm. in trying to tackle societal problems, believe it or not. 
Right. Okay. Um, what does that mean? What do you mean? <laughs> well, uh, so early, early on, um, there's a, an extortion racket that existed in, in Italy, which is referred to as the Black Hand. Um, that made its way over to New York with the Italian immigrants. What the Black Hand basically is, it's a, it's a style of extortion that was popular in the Kingdom of Naples. So, it's, so that's southern, southern Italy and Sicily. And basically what it was is you would kidnap a family member um, from a we- of a wealthy family and you would then send a note to the head of that family with, a, with a, a threatening letter that had a black hand symbol on it. And that would basically be things like, you know, leave the money here um, and come alone and all of this kind of stuff. And if you, don't, if you don't leave it by this time, they'll send you a finger. If you don't leave it by this time, they'll send you a hand, then they'll send you a foot, then they'll send you an arm. And, you know, <laughs> you know. Um, so this kind of thing became quite popular among the Italian uh, street gangs. So that's the black hand, yes. not to be confused with the black spot in Treasure Island, and more importantly, Muppet Treasure Island, uh, it will similarly lead to death, though. Go on. I mean, I'm sure there's some level of crossover there, right? (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) Um, So, look, there's an entirely uh, prevalent gang culture that exists in New York in the 19th century, as you see in the movie uh, Guys in New York. But the Black Hand and Italian mob start to filter into that. There is, obviously, ethnic clashes then as well. Certain ethnic groups are maybe more inclined to ally or intermarry with each other you'll find catholic groups are kind of easier to get along with each other so irish will marry italians and polish and, and so on things like that um although some of the debate happened with the irish in that when they arrived in new york they could speak english so they often became city officials or they often became police mm. and firefighters mm. but that would be literally the only reason just they could speak english um anyway into this kind of scene came a an italian called paolo vaccarelli who's more well known as Paul Kelly. Mm. Paul Kelly was a prize fighter, but unlike a lot of prize fighters, he was clever with his money and he invested it in brothels. So what he started doing basically in lower Manhattan was opening up these uh, these brothels where various street toughs and thugs and deals and extortion things would go on and illegal gambling would go on in his brothels. All of which led to him essentially forming a gang which is known as the Five Points Gang. So that happened in 1876 and it ran for... 40 years, 50 years, maybe until 1920, around then. That was kind of a loose collection of various immigrant groups. So there was Irish in that, there was Italians in that, there was some Jews, there was some Poles. Um, so would we say that up to this point there, uh, obviously while there's a fair bit of crime and all, it wouldn't necessarily be as, well, organised? Structurally? Y- yeah, so it, yeah, that that is definitely fair to say. There isn't the same level of structure that you would have in, let's say, the Sicilian Mafia that existed in Europe. So that has a very, very organized structural system that you'll know from The Sopranos. So you'll have guys referred to as the boss or I think like as The Sopranos opens up, Tony is more of a, is what they might refer to as an underboss. So he's not the Don as such, but he's in charge. And you mentioned like extortion and racketeering and that type of thing. Yeah. But um, there's a famous quote, I think it's in Goodfellas movie where he's like, we're... We, we're the police for people who can't go to the police. So yeah. were they also a major protection racket as well? for people? 100%. So the mafia itself in Sicily, that's actually how it was formed. It was, you would hire these protection, these guards to guard over your your, your orange grove. That's literally what the mafia came yeah. from. And they were referred to as the men of honour. The, the, the that's kind of what mafia means. And they had this very stru- uh, strict um, system of, of swearing oaths, which is referred to as omerta, which is something that they, they allege st- still goes on now. This idea of being a made man, that comes from that. Mm. Once you become made, you see it actually in The Sopranos, right? When, when yeah. you become made, you're just not allowed 
speak. You're not allowed to admit to anyone else's criminality. You're not allowed to admit to this thing of ours, the Il Cosa Nostra. Um, none of that had reached New York to any great extent at that point when the five gangs or five, um, five points, points gang, gang uh, was operating. But Kelly was an early recruiter of figures who later became very important in the American Mafia, such as Johnny Torrio, Al Capone, and Salvatore Luciano. And was Italian heritage, I know it's probably a stupid thing to say, but given the mix of different mobs in the, in New York, um, was Italian heritage essential, basically, to be involved with it? Very good, to very, move up in it, I very, very good question. Early on, no. So the American-born uh, Italians maybe are, are probably a little more integrated. They're more inclined to have ties and work with Irish mob and Jewish mob. The, the, the later wave of immigration that comes in following the rise of fascism and the hard right in Italy, that forces a lot of um, actual mafia in Camorra and Nangretta members out of Italy because there's a massive crackdown on organised crime. Mm. A lot of those people flee to America because there's an, there's an established uh, Italian community yeah. there, like in, in Little Italy in the areas around there. So you have Sicilians who arrive into New York and they start to put the structure on the on the gangs, they have a sort a certain level of uh, inbuilt respect because they're from the homeland. You know, they have this kind of this kind of attitude where they're like, "Oh, this guy's kind of wafted in." And these are not street toughs. These are these are not guys who who dress like they've come off the street. These are guys who wear suits. You know, they're they're well dressed. They've got money. They don't they don't mess around. But what they do is they recruit these guys from Paul Kelly's gang. Mm. So um, the likes of Lucky Luciano, he was working with a, a very famous. Um, Jewish mobster, uh, a guy who used to fix bets, who was called uh, Rothstein, Arnold Rothstein, the brain, they called him. And he learned, as Luciano says himself, like he taught him how to dress properly. So he would buy him a suit and say, stop wearing flat caps, that's what, that's what, that's what children wear. Don't, don't, don't be wearing things like that. You wear, you wear a nice suit. You don't want people to immediately know what you're about. Yeah. You want, you want them to think that, no, no, this is, this is a guy who's serious and he's, he's got money. Like, you know, uh, you referenced earlier, no boss would wear shorts. You know, yeah. that's, that's, <laughs> what, that's, what, that's a reference. That, you know, the, the, these guys are... Or see a shrink either. Yeah, yeah or admit, admit, any kind of, admit any kind of weakness. Like, that's, that's the thing with Soprano, right? And as we all know, emotions is weakness. Yes, yeah, of course. Well, we know that as being, being Irish. We tend to <laughs> bottle this up until we just collapse into a heap of... Misery. Yes, anyway. I mean, maybe it should be mentioned. It's called The Irishman. Uh, I've got two Irishmen right here. <laughs> um, what do we think of... Uh, I mean, we're getting more into Frank later, but uh, how do you think uh, this uh, relates to the portrayal of Irish people in media? You know? I think you can see some of the Irish stoicism in it, right? I mean, <laughs> the, the, it, that kind of ties into the Omerta thing, where, the, where the, the, the mob don't talk about the mob. That suits Irish hitmen. You will actually see mafia families throughout history hire Irish hitmen because if there's one guy who's not going to say anything it's, it's the Irish guy well, what I think is that when the Irish moved to America and eventually they found it probably easier in terms of language and that to integrate into American culture um, and like Mark said that they would have went into the police forces and all this type of thing um, but what their big distinguishing feature was always Catholicism and yeah. when we go into Frank's uh, obviously that's the the Irish from largely from the s southern counties of Ireland, you know, there would have been Scotch Irish too, um, who would have m largely emigrated to the south. But um, essentially, f this c Catholicism is what continued to distinguish them. It was also probably one of the reasons they were discriminated against. And it's also when we look at Frank's life, you'll see the influence that that uh, 
culture of Catholicism and religion and general and the moral code and all that, that had a major influence on him, as it did on generations of Irish people. Yeah. I think I think that's I think that's definitely fair. I mean, I, I even had an experience myself where uh, a friend of mine is a, an old uh, Italian American. Um, well, it's a bit unfair to call him. Well, he is in his eighties, um, <laughs> but he um, he one, once about maybe ten years ago he introduced me to a gang of his friends who were all from the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Now they were living in Buffalo at the time, and it was like walking onto the set of The Sopranos, you know. And I thought, no, I thought, no, nah, they're not really like this. The Italian Americans, these old guys, but they were, and they did have names like Paulie and Vito and, and things like that. And when I came in, they said, "Oh, is this the kid? <laughs> this, this is the Mick kid. So you know, this is this is this is the Irish kid." And yeah. one of them said, "Oh, don't arrest me." So I had to say I'm not that kind of Irish, which they really liked, you know. Mm. So it was free drinks for me. So mm. and you are still alive, so well. Indeed, done. I am still alive. Yeah. Well, one of them was a barber. I don't think he was going to shoot me. Like, but you know. <laughs> well, he's, they've got those knives. I don't want to say, you know, the, the, you could get something done with a knife, you know. Uh, and Mark, so obviously that was kind of the foundation of these um, groups in mainly New York, yeah. but immigrant communities. But what was the petrol i suppose to the flame that really turned them into a powerful kind of group what yeah so 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 what I, what i kind of referenced earlier was like the, the the government accidentally bringing a lot of this on themselves yeah so we have a wave of sicilian uh, immigration generally but we have a wave of more senior sicilian immigration that come in so you get um guys who kind of know how to organize things start arriving into america into the major industrial cities in america um, two names that, that I'll mention now that I'll, I'll get into in a minute uh, Joe Mazzaria and Sal Maranzano they're two guys who, who arrive in from Sicily and they really start to put a structure on how, how the racketeering works but what the American government does around this time is they introduce something called the Volstead Act which is uh, an amendment to the constitution which outlaws alcohol alright yeah. massive yeah, yeah, massive yeah, yeah. mistake I mean this is this is like one of the stupidest things the government had, had had done in the 20th century. Really, really like look. It's easy to say in hindsight, but I mean you can ban the alcohol, but that doesn't get rid of the taste for alcohol. It doesn't get rid of the demand for alcohol. Addiction. So, or the addiction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. So what happens? Who steps in? The mob steps in. So bootlegging. This becomes a major, major yeah. uh, issue. And uh, as as we discussed many times, I and a lot of people just know uh, history through television and movies. So this is where we get into Boardwalk Empire type territory. Yes, right? yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's also it's also uh, important to point out that um, you know Boardwalk Empire is depicting. Um, I think they call him Nucky Thompson in the show, but the real life person was Nucky Johnson. Mm. But he was a he was a political figure. Uh, he was the I think he was the treasurer maybe of Atlantic City. Something that you think would be fairly minor, but he was extraordinarily wealthy, and nobody thought to question where his wealth was coming from. Mm. Bootlegging, mm. bootlegging is what is what like you just said. It's the petrol to the flame. So these are street gangs that are starting to become organized um, with structures, and then suddenly the amount of money that's potentially being made by these people just skyrockets. That leads to everything that you could think of. There's gang wars, left, right, and center. There's huge amounts of money being made. There's people hiding money in this place, hiding money in that place. People are making connections into other American cities. The construction of uh, major roadworks around this time as well. That helps the distribution. Um, and the cities where you start to see organized crime really take off, it's not surprising what cities they happen in. They're ones that are near borders or near water or mm. near... You know, they're, or their cross points. So, uh, Buffalo, New York, right on the Niagara River, right across the river from Canada. If you want some uh, whiskey, that's where you get it. Yeah. There's a whole canal structure there. All you need to do is make sure you've got the uh, the guys who work in the canal bought off. That's usually the Irish. You buy them off, 
with whiskey probably um and some money and then you drive that down through mob territory you get it into new york you get it into new jersey you get it into philadelphia would Chicago, rome be would one. rome have been coming in through oh for sure yeah yeah cuban florida yeah, of course of course well, rome, yeah. rome starts arriving into miami mm. then you start getting uh, um members of various crime organizations in new york sending people to different parts of america to establish themselves um but this is a distribution network all for the sale of illegal alcohol and it massively, massively takes off. What happens with some of the guys I mentioned earlier, there's a, a very important figure. He's kind of regarded as... He might be the most famous uh, Italian mobster in American history, which is a guy called Salvatore Lucania, who's, uh, who, um, because of some misspellings in the newspaper, is known as uh, Charlie Luciano, or Lucky Luciano. Mm. He is uh, a Sicilian-born um, New York mobster. And uh, he's involved in uh, racketeering, protection rackets, all that kind of stuff. Um, and as I said earlier, he gets involved with Arnold Rothstein. But through him, he meets uh, John Mazzaria, who's uh, one of the the older Sicilian guys who started to organize things. They call him the boss, Joe the Boss Mazzaria. So Mazzaria is trying to organize some street gangs. He brings Luciano in as one of his one of his one of his guys, one of his lieutenants, a hitman essentially. Um, Eventually, what happens is Joe Mazzaria and Sal Maranzano have a falling out over territory. And this leads to a massive gang war in New York, which is referred to as the Castellamarese War. And this ends when Luciano betrays Joe Mazzaria. So, great movie, I'd say. Oh, it would be it would be a great movie, yeah. Is there not one? There sounds like it sh- there should be one. Yeah. A lot of it is actually let's, let's write one, Jacob. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of it is actually portrayed in the in Boardwalk Empire. Yeah. Luciano's a key figure in that. Um so Mazzaria, it starts, it, it's not going very well for Mazzaria. Maranzano's getting the upper hand. He's, some of his hits are, are more successful. Luciano sees it's not going well. So he basically goes to Maranzano and he says, listen, I'll whack him. And then uh, if you agree to just give me his crew after after this is all settled, we'll all recognize you as the boss. So Maranzano says, yeah, okay, go, go and do it. So Luciano and some of his pals, uh, including... Um, some surnames which if you're familiar with the mob you, you'll know like Genovese and Costello they go along to a to a restaurant to meet Mazzaria and like the hit in, in The Godfather that's basically what they do they go into the toilet take a gun out shoot the guy in the head run off it all goes horrendously wrong but what ends up happening is the gangs now recognise that Maranzano is the guy he's so the we're, guy we're creating a godfather yes yes over. so what happens is they have a meeting so Maranzano calls a meeting of all the prominent gang leaders. Mm. Um, what uh, remind me what year we're in at this point? So we're in the late twenties right now, we're right? Like twenty eight, twenty nine. Yeah, right yeah. Now. So they call a, a a meeting where they decide on an actual structural organization to how the gangs will operate. Um, and Maranzano refers to himself as the Capo de Tutti Capi, so he's the captain of captains. Right. So he's the the, the, the Godfather essentially. He's the, the the king of kings. You know. First money. The first among equals. We say princeps if we're going back. To yes, we could indeed. Yeah, um, which they would probably like you doing because you know <laughs> the whole Italian thing. But um, so he organizes the the the, the mob into five families, um, which are the Maranzano, Profesi, Mangano, Lucania, and Gagliano families. The modern day five families of New York. That's these families. Mm. Um, I would just like to say this is all alleged. No, I'm just gonna just in case you know someone's gonna threaten us or whatever. But the alleged versions of those families now are Bonanno. Colombo, Gambino, Genovese, and Lucchese. 
So they're, they're family names that you'll hear maybe in the news. These are the guys, like I was saying earlier, who turn up to Gandolfini's funeral, you know, after after the start of Sopranos um, uh, died. Um, but these are kind of, they follow the old Sicilian ways. So the whole concept of Omerta, which is the which is the honour system that, that they have to swear into, never, you know, never mention the existence of El Cosa Nostra and all that kind of stuff. That all comes out of this. The concept of being a made man, that all comes out of this. And, um, it becomes formalized at this point. Now, the other cities also have representation here, but these guys are recognized as the top five. Yeah, I was going to ask, so Maranzano, when this split into five families happened, was that just New York? or That's that's New York. They're in the New yeah. York families, yeah. And and that's because that's where the bulk of the Italians are. That's where most of the money is. And the, the families that exist in the other cities, Philadelphia, uh, Chicago, and, and Buffalo principally, they are kind of outgrowths of these New York families, if that makes sense. These are guys who are loosely related in some in some in some way or other. Um I mentioned a guy earlier who worked for Paul Kelly called Johnny Torrio. He was invited to Chicago by a guy he referred to as his uncle, uh, Big Jim Colosimo. He wasn't actually his uncle, but that's that's what they call him. He brought his kind of his protege with him, which was Al Capone. So these were two Brooklyn gangsters who went to Chicago and they said, Well, you know, there isn't that much organization here. We could take over the mob here. They whack Colosimo. Johnny Torrio takes over. He eventually retires after getting kind of he gets he gets in a lot of trouble. And he retire. He doesn't die, but he retires back to Sicily. And Al Capone takes over, and we all know what happens there. We've we've and seen the Untouchables, right? Yeah. Just a word on this because um, essentially these gangs existed, and obviously there was like cases such as Al Capone, which were high profile, yeah, all sure. over the news, all that, but. The structure of territories and official division, like a shadow government in a way, yeah. that wasn't generally known in the public. It was it was denied. Oh, this, is, I, this is completely hidden. Like, nobody mm, knows about this. I, be, I believe it was even denied by the head of the FBI, Hoover, who said there was no such organized crime yeah. syndicate. This, this is boogeyman stuff. It doesn't really exist. Exactly. Yeah. 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 The, the funny thing about this is there, there, there's every every shred of proof you could hope to want exists on this stuff. Mm. When the, when the five families met. There was records kept, like the, the, you know, there was there's hotel receipts to show that these guys are all in the same place at the same time. Like the, mm. the, these things definitely, definitely took place, but nobody spoke about it. Yeah. When did these things come to light? These records, this oh, much, much knowledge. later. I mean, really, the 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 lid is blown off the mob in the eighties when uh, the now much maligned Rudy Giuliani, yeah. um, who, who was the district attorney of New York, he took a personal vendetta against organized crime some of it i think was kind of an ethnic um an ethnic issue because being an italian himself he felt that the the mob was like a a permanent stain on italian americans and people would only ever associate organized crime with italian americans which wasn't fair because there was a you know i mean there's a lot of irish mobs and jewish mobs and mobs of every ethnicity and also i mean it's not like as if that's the only contribution to american society that italians have made you know but he took a major major issue with it and yeah, it I was mean, to- Tony's grandfather built a church. I don't know. If yeah, heard, yeah. Well, there you go. You know. Um, um, but yeah, no. That's something. Just in general, a topic that's so you know uh, prevalent in Paul, the Paul Gaultieri, He liked to donate to the church too, right? Wasn't there? Oh yeah. Really? Yeah. In terms but, of uh, just in terms of blowing the lid off it, um, I know there was a lot of gr- uh, indictments and all that in the eighties, and a lot of them were yeah, jailed. Yeah, but yeah. We were mentioning it earlier, Mark. There was a, a meeting in nineteen fifty-seven, and it was a major meeting mm. of basically uh, every major crime boss 
uh, Italian um, mafia boss in America. Yeah, and it was the Appalach. It was in Appalachia, the Appalachian in New York, mountain range. Yeah, so and that was that was significant. Why? Well, so we have the five families. Let, let me let me let me build to it. There, there is the, mm. the five families, but. Uh, one of the reasons why Luciano turned on Mazzaria is because he felt he was very old-fashioned and he, he, he wasn't open to getting involved in the drug trade. So mm. Luciano viewed this as, you're limiting how much money we can make. What are you doing? This is this is ridiculous. While Maranzano seemed to be maybe a little bit more kind of loose, he was still a bit old-fashioned. And in his day, the mob didn't get involved in drugs. That's not yeah. what we do. We're protection, we're prostitution, we're bootlegging. Yeah, so, honest, good, hard, honest good, work. Honest, honest crime, you yeah. know? Um, so basically, Luciano decides... Uh, I'm actually going to whack Maranzano. So there's a there's an incident that's called referred to as the Night of the Sicilian Vespers, where Luciano basically gets a lot of his Jewish friends, um, who he knows from the Lower East Side, who wouldn't be well known to mafia leaders um, and five family leaders, and he basically takes out all the old Sicilian guys, has them all whacked. And what he does is he calls the five families together again. This time they refer to them as the Commission. Mm. And he abolishes the title of the Capo de Tutti Capi. He says, no, there isn't any one person over anyone else. This is like a board of directors it's now. Al- yeah, it's already, I was going to say, sounding more formal or like a, yeah, 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 yeah. Like a corporation almost. The difference yeah. with the commission is, or some, they're actually sometimes referred to as the board, believe it or not. Like, that's what they actually call them. And these are the heads of the families, but they also bring in powerful families from everywhere else. So the board meet, and that's... that's uh, Luciano and Profesi and Mangano, Gagliano, but they also bring in um, they also bring in the leader of the Buffalo Mob, which is a guy called Stefano Magadino, uh, or it's alleged to be a guy called Magadino. Mm. Um, not saying that they're still in power now, but they definitely are. Um, so they bring those guys in, and also the heads of the Chicago uh, crime crew, which is Capone at that point. Um, also along with with this group is Luciano's advisors, Bugsy Siegel and Meyer Lansky, who are two who are two Jewish. Uh, mobsters. Now they can't officially be members of the Five Family because they're not Italian. Yeah. But for all intents and purposes, they are. Mm. Um. So what ends up happening? Luciano has his career. There's a whole um, issue with him um, being arrested and indictment on racketeering uh, charges, bootlegging, all sorts of stuff. He eventually gets actually deported out of America and he's deported back to Sicily. Now while he's gone, one of his friends, Costello, takes over his crew. Uh, so Costello is, is running the Lu- Luciano crime family at this point until he gets whacked. So he gets whacked by a guy called Vito Genovese. Genovese is the guy we're talking about in the 50s. So in order to establish his power, he calls a meeting of the commission. Now, you can only call a meeting of the commission if you're recognized as a don, like you're mm. one of the leaders of the families. And there's can only be five at any time, or what's the... There's the yeah, traditionally there's the five families, but really they're, they're anywhere between kind of five and ten mm. representatives at this. Yeah. Um, so he calls this meeting and he says to uh, one of the other mob leaders, the, the leader in Buffalo, uh, Magadino, he says, I want you to, to sort out, the, sort out the, the particulars for this. You decide where it's going to be. So Magadino goes to one of his guys, which is Russell Buffalino. Wait. Oh, I know this name. Who this? So this is Joe Pesci, yeah? This is Joe yeah. Pesci's character, yeah. the Irishman, yeah. Which so, also, I mean, we have to just lightly touch on. What a star-studded cast in the oh, Irishman. It's incredible, it's incredible. Amazing. I, I particularly together. liked that uh, that um, Pesci played him because, you know you know the way you associate Pesci with these like loud, kind of over-the-top kind of characters? Yeah. But he plays Buffalino, who's very staid, very calm, very kind of calculating and just calm and quiet. And he portrays a lot of the character just through his eyes. It's really, really well done. Um 
But Buffalino's an interesting character. He's also a Sicilian-born um, American immigrant. His family uh, arrived into Buffalo, uh, New York, in 1906. And he, uh, growing up, was a bit rough and got involved in bootlegging and, and kind of came in under the wing of the Magadino crime family. He later then moved to Pennsylvania, um, to, um, to Philadelphia. And when Genovese calls the, the commission, Magadino tells Buffalino, I, I want you to kind of set up the particulars of this. That's the Appalachian meeting you're speaking about. So they all meet, met up in this place. It's in Appalachian, this, this town. And I believe they were swooped in on, I think 58 of them were arrested. Yeah. Another yeah, yeah. 50 escaped. Uh, but it basically, all of a sudden, it was out in the open that this organized structure uh, running an organized crime organization um, was essentially uh, act, uh, acting in, or hiding in plain sight. Yeah, suppose, yeah, yeah, absolutely. The, the, the issue here is like we, we mentioned about the FBI and Hoover saying he didn't know the existence. Rubbish. Like, it's just all rubbish. Luci- they knew damn well. Luciano had even been allowed to come back to America during World War II on the basis that he would use his mob connections to influence the dock workers in New York to hand over naval intelligence. Mm. to the American government they knew damn well these guys what mm. they were doing like, you know they mm. always knew yeah mm. but so this is still a, a shift though when when everyone's arrested at the Appalachian meeting I suppose because wait so Russ who obviously is very central in uh, in the Irishman uh, he doesn't like who, who does anyone get into trouble based on uh, the fact that everyone was kind of busted or, like does this lead to actually part of the mafia getting shut down or so what we will probably be exploring it a little bit later on but it will lead to basically uh bobby kennedy uh deciding to uh, uh to to deciding to basically go hell for leather after organized crime he's gone for war he's gone and to war also the jimmy yeah. hoffa but we can go into that in a moment i suppose um in terms of buffalino it's good that we're getting to this point because essentially there's three main people in this film that you need to be aware of. And yeah. One is Russ Buffalino, one is Frank Sheeran, and then the other one is James Hoffa. And it's the relationship between those three men that is so fascinating in this film and the decisions that they have to make. So, um, in terms of Buffalino, I suppose it's we can we can it's probably a good now that we've established I suppose where the mob is and how it came. We're into the fifties. It has been, I suppose, it's it's incredibly powerful, um, and it's just been revealed in all its in in all its light. Yeah, it's one it's one of those things where it's kind of a uh, it's kind of a um, an unspoken uh, known secret. Like it's an open secret, isn't that the phrase? Like it's yeah. no, it's an open secret. Yeah. But now it's just like you know, like Buffalino mm. when he, when he, when he when when those arrests come, he's driving right. In the car is Genovese, like the, the, the guy who's the head of the Genovese crime family. He's in the car with him, and they're and they're like, "You're under arrest. What are the hell are you doing here? Whatever." And Puffalino's like, "I'm just visiting my my my, my, my friend." Like you know, he's in the car with like some of the most uh, wanted criminal masterminds in the history of the United States, just driving down the road. You know, and I think yeah, that's a good point because what's important about that meeting in the mid '50s is that up until then they weren't harassed by the police they might have no right. they would have had to pay off local police yeah. but they wouldn't have had the FBI after them no. they wouldn't have had uh, the government necessarily after them yeah. whereas after that 
they had to watch what they had All to do. All bets off now, yeah. They couldn't even, like, they'd have to be careful to if, if, if several of them met in one restaurant, you know. They were constantly fearing bu- being bugged uh, uh and and rats and all this so it, it essentially their 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 years of comfort came to an end in, yeah. 19, in the 1950s so yeah. this was 1955 everything before then uh might reasonably be titled the golden age where you know so this this is a, this is exactly it so you you know new reference at the start about tony soprano feeling yeah. that he's coming in at the end of the golden era this is it, it very much is so junior soprano and johnny boy soprano you might even say came in kind of at the, towards the end as well, yeah. but they were born and reared in the era of of like the the five families being seriously seriously powerful, and their New Jersey uh, their quote unquote glorified crew um, were uh, you know New New Jersey gangsters who would have kind of fed off the the scraps that were thrown to them by the five families. Yeah, and I wouldn't know about uh, as much about this as uh, you, Mark, for example. I mean, I haven't read into it, but it feels uh, logical to say, you know, that's the golden era up until 1957, and then maybe a silver era following that, yeah. where we have, you know, there's still stuff going on. There, the it's almost like... And all those guys, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and all the leaders or whatever, if you're, you're worried about being bugged, but it's kind of like, ah, these annoying police, like, mm. ah, they're always buzzing around. We have to do something yeah. about them. And then tides shift even further, obviously, 80s and 90s as you know Tony comes into power and is like well fuck everything's completely fucked it used to be people were like this Sh- should I get like an that. office job yeah probably, you know yeah, what yeah, I mean yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah in sanitation yeah, <laughs> yeah. so uh, Russ did he get into trouble after uh, during any of this or was he okay well I suppose like what it's probably a good time to actually jump into the other part of this triumvirate I suppose which is Frank Sheeran yeah uh, because it was around this time when Russ and the mob were exposed, essentially at this Appalachian meeting, that Russ would have got to know Frank. So I suppose if we want, we can talk a little bit about Frank Sheeran's life and why he's so important. Yeah, we might not know this, but uh, I mean, in in the film, mm. they meet because uh, Frank's car is broken down. Yeah. This, did this so happen? yeah, well, in the book, well, I've read the book. This um, is one of the ledges, right? That's what they say. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, one thing we have to say before we get into the discussion about Frank is that. Um, a lot of, uh, although we can take his word on a lot of things and he's extremely detailed and a lot of the time he'd have no reason to make up uh, any lies. The thing is that um, to a large degree, we can't prove a lot of the stuff he said and particularly at the end of his life. So we just want to be clear that this is based, a lot of this is based Everything on his own interviews. It's all alleged. We're not saying this is true. It's alleged. And he, yeah, <laughs> and he didn't try to sh- sugarcoat like he, he admitted when he murdered people, he admitted this kind of thing. But uh, we do have to be, he, you know, we don't know what his motives are. We don't know what the circumstances are exactly. So this is the truth according to Frank Sheeran, essentially, you know? Yeah. Um, but yes, he did apparently meet him by chance uh, where his truck broke down. And essentially, uh, Russell Buffalino uh, came up and fixed, helped him fix his truck. And that was the start then of their relationship. Yeah. Uh, but I suppose we can go back to Frank's own life, if you'd like, you know, because he is a, he's a he's fascinating so character. So Bu- Buffalino's in Philadelphia, essentially, as the mob boss there, working under the auspices of the commission. So Frank Sheeran's a Philadelphia native, or? Yeah, so uh, Frank is... 
born to an Irish father and a Swedish mother. It's actually... It's a fine yeah, mix. Yeah, let me actually it's get fine in mix. on this. Because yeah. uh, as soon as I started looking into this, I hear, oh, the Irishman. Oh, he's got Irish heritage. Ah, his mother's fucking Swedish. Yeah, and he got his size from his mother. That's so right. He was and his mental fortuity and all sorts of good his traits, good looks, I'm sure. Absolutely. And every, everything. And his yeah. emotional detachment <laughs> and ability to kill scores of people without feeling a thing. So that's probably a good mix of exactly. both. Exactly. And but, um, I suppose we'll say he got his uh, mild alcohol addiction and depression from his <laughs> Irish side. So, you know. Well, yeah, we're, not, I, we're, not, we're not coming out well here at all. We're not like, coming we're out. Really sure. well. At least we, we can say it, Mark. We're all right, you know. Um, but I mean, yeah, no, I, I get it. Like, this. Swedishman does not sound. It's like if I there's like a, it. I but like everyone it. thinks Viking as soon as you say that, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> well, I I don't know. I just can't imagine like uh like he needs to be handled. Send in the Swede. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like you're sending a vegetable to come after. You. Similarly, yeah. I can do this voice. He needs to be handled. Send in the Swede. That sounds like you're 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 building some furniture. Like it sounds exactly. Like yeah, 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 are going to come yeah. in right now. IKEA barely existed at this point. It did exist, but it was not as international at this no, point. No, certainly not. But um, you will arrive in a Volvo. <laughs> but uh, well, yes, I was rather annoyed by this. To be honest, it could have been the Swede missed opportunity from uh, Scorsese, and I suppose from Russ, who, as I heard it, introduced him as the Irishman, much like you were describing, well, Mark, that you get whatever. Yeah, this, this is the Mick kid, or whatever. This is the Irishman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So really, I mean, we we, we you're free to blame. Uh, Buffalino here, but I mean, nicknames are pretty prevalent in, in uh, organized crime. He uh, was culture. once called yeah. Cheech, because, but then they changed it, basically. Yeah, you know? which is, Let's that's Francesco, right? That's yeah. short for Francesco. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Let's get into Frank then. So what was his uh, life like yeah, before so this Yes, as I point? said, born in Philadelphia in 1920. The big thing that uh, holds sway over his early life is poverty. So essentially, the f- uh, son of a tough uh, st- Irish uh a steel worker but a man who had many many jobs his father um and a swedish mother the thing that is the overarching thing here is that it was the great depression so it was difficult to make a living no matter what you were doing um he essentially would have grown up in philadelphia uh, would have been ex- exposed to kind of a, a harsh version of catholicism his mother was extremely religious he asked he was asked how he would describe his mother he said religious that's the way he described it his, a, a, a catholic swede yeah yeah his father uh, had studied they're few and far between yeah and his father as well his father had been uh, studied to be a priest for five years and dropped out and his two aunts so frank's two aunts would were nuns so you're talking of really in, so yeah yeah he's in there exactly yeah 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 um now big thing is about his up uh, like there's tons of anecdotes but about how he became a tough street kid he even learned italian because he was in italian neighborhoods um one of the reasons the mafia the italian mafia respected him so much is because he could actually communicate to them in 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 their language and they saw that as a mark of respect towards them um but in the film, they depict it as, I mean, his backstory is basically like one scene where yeah. uh, he talks to Russ and describes how, you know, he learned in, in the war, he learned Italian and just about how, you know, yeah, he was, he was even younger than that. Yeah, yeah, it was when he was in these neighborhoods. The, I think one of the most interesting things from his youth to kind of give you to, to give you an idea of why he became why he was such a tough kid was essentially his father had a bit of a drinking problem. He was always kind of half in and out of work. They were always running away from the from the landlord. So they'd, they'd get an apartment, they'd stay a couple of months, the rent would go late and they'd run away. But basically his father used to 
when Frank was about 10, so you're talking 1930 here, midst of the Depression, his father used to bet for a quart of beer in all the local pubs that his 10-year-old son could kick the shit out of the other men, the other drinkers, 15, 14, 15-year-old son. Jesus. And then he used to bring in the kid, he'd bring in Frank, so our, our hero, if you want to call him, or uh, whatever, whatever you want to look at him, he used to bring him into the pub and he'd have to fight the other kid there and then in the pub. And if he won, obviously his father would have enough money to keep drinking. And if he lost, the father would kick the shit out. You know, so he had a yeah. really, really tough upbringing. Um, he, I suppose, he, well, he was... So he was also a prize fighter then, much like Paul Kelly. Um. <laughs> yeah, I suppose, yeah. Well, this is what I mean, he not, actually... Not, not to play into Irish stereotypes of bare-knuckle boxing and fighting <laughs> fighting for beer for money, you <laughs> This know? is it, but... Also he, getting the shit kicked out of you by your dad. <laughs> well, he, he actually said, in he's one of his quotes in the book, he said, learned, he learned how to fight by getting his ass kicked once in a while. Basically, every so often he'd lose and then he'd learn little tricks here and there. The other thing, he got expelled. So he was only in the ninth grade. Um, and he told the principal, basically, he called him a fat fuck and he smacked him. So that was him gone then out of the school. And he kind of went off doing a few different random jobs. This is before World War Two now. So, you know, you're talking um, him in the mid 30s, late 30s. Uh, and essentially, he joined the carnival. So the carnival was a very good experience for him because he was only about 16 or 17. So this is the, I ran away to join the circus kind yeah. of story. And okay. he did, the regent traveling carnival. <laughs> and uh, he, what he said himself where, was that's where he got a college education in how to please a woman. Oh, lovely. Now, the reason for that is there was two go-go dancers in the circus who took a light to him. Uh, one was called Little Egypt, and the other one was called Neptune of the Nile. It's funny um, that like, this is all based on his remembrance. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, and he was telling these things in his eighties, so it could have been like you could have been making it up, but who knows? Either making it up, or like I just like that he remembers the name of the go go dancer. Oh yeah, of course he does. Well, he remembered them because he had uh, several threesomes with them, and over From the course of a summer, they taught him. As he said himself, they gave him a college education, how to please probably, a woman. Uh, probably just uh, the other Irish stereotype of storytelling coming into play there. <laughs> there could have been a bit of a shanaky about him, all right. <laughs> uh, and I suppose then the next big thing to happen to Frank and what really turned him into, uh, I suppose, a cold-blooded killer in a lot of ways, but we'll see, he's a, he's a complicated character, was the outbreak of World War Two. Yeah. Um, so that's where, I suppose... A man who saw a lot of action in World War II. Yeah, I so I suppose the easiest way to put this is that, from what I've been reading, is that the average amount of combat days that someone had in World War Two was 80. Uh, so that's days in action, direct line of fire. Now, Frank had 411 over wow. four years. Now, he was for 50 days he went AWOL. He, as he said himself, he was chasing German, Italian women and going drinking. <laughs> But he said he never abandoned his post when his men needed him. <laughs> you know? So I just want to say that. Uh, but the most important thing is he joined a group that was basically called the Thunderbirds Division. Mm. And what's important about them is they were the 45th Infantry Division. Okay. And the general, the American general at the time, who was obviously sending these young men to war, he actually was giving them f quite a few speeches and one of them what he said is he wanted the Germans to refer to hit to Frank's division as the killing division he wanted them to fear them and 
the way, the way Patton actually quoted it was the only good German was a dead one. And sounds said, like, that sounds like Patton, all right. This yeah. is it. And he essentially encouraged them to, uh, I suppose, commit war crimes is what you'd call it. So. What what um what what theaters are we talking about here? Is this is yeah. this the invasion of Italy or are we talking about Normandy? Where where is he fighting? Exactly. So he would have started in Italy. He went through Sicily. Uh, he actually went through Ruffel, uh, Russell Buffalini's uh, hometown, um, which they had a great chat yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, then they would have he would have been involved in uh, the siege of Monte Mont Cassino, Mont Cassino yeah. liberation of Rome. Wow. Uh, he was in southern France. Then he was into Germany. So basically, he's seen it all, and he never got shot. Okay, which is amazing. In four hundred and how many uh, and days of action? Days. That's yeah, that's that's good yeah. going. That's uh, good going. The, the thing that really stuck me though was that he he said uh, like he what what stayed with him was how every day and normal it came to kill. So it, although it was never said when they'd capture a couple of Germans, and this is actually shown in the film, yeah. it was never said yeah. go and kill them. What we said is. Uh, take them back there, behind there, and hurry up. So essentially, it was said without it goes without saying that they killed it prisoners it said, of war, which like, is all. These are all war crimes, yeah, you know. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah. Now, when he like he did witness terrible things, and this is what shaped his psyche then and turned him into such a cold blooded killer later, um, was because he even mentions they liberated the camp of Dachau, yeah. The, yeah. the concentration camp, and he mentions how the images are printed on his mind forever and that that to, he was haunted by those things after the war he said basically he never slept more three or four hours a, so do we do we think now I, I don't want you i don't want you to mm. to say you're a psychiatrist or anything like but are we, are we talking about a guy here who just has the most profound ptsd imaginable well, well yeah oh in many ways and he he like one thing he said was that killing was like and this is a direct quote from the book he said you did them so murders like you might scratch your head if it itched <laughs> you know so wow. it was that okay. every day for him um part of me thinks he really would uh have use for some sessions with melfi uh other yeah. parts of me think <laughs> she'd uh, probably make him worse <laughs> yeah she i mean he he probably couldn't say any of this stuff even tony who you know murders someone on a occasion you know on a fortnight or whatever this uh this well, is a t- different tony level. soprano when he murders somebody though usually like beats him to death with a frying pan or something or yeah cracks him over a, over a fridge this guy is mowing down scores of Italian yeah, and he, he didn't... The thing with him is that he'd always followed orders. Yeah. And this is what was always to alluded to in his later career with the Mafia. He was going to say, that's going to that's gonna serve him well under Buffalino and... and uh, exactly. And, right? yeah. and uh, anyway, so he had a, an amazing, like uh, an unbelievable tour in Europe in terms of what his, what his look and getting out of it, but also the shock that it put into him. But like the way he put it, when he finally was discharged in 1945... Um, the way he put it was that he was discharged officially, but only according to the calendar because it never left him. Yeah. Basically, for the rest of oh, his well, life, it always it always yeah, yeah. stayed with him. He's still in the war in his mind. Precisely, yeah. So that so that's bringing us that's that's basically his career up and down. And then essentially, he comes back to America, but he's a changed man. Yeah, mm. as many many men would have been, of course, at that time. But um, so he he meets Russ. On the roadside, well, apparently. Well, initially, yeah. So he would have he would have got many different odd jobs. It's shown in the film, you know. He yeah, was he's a like truck delivery driver. driver and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This would have been his first time in these Teamster unions that become so important later. He was involved in kind of Robin Hind, hindquarters of beef, 
all that type of thing. But it was small scale stuff. It's kind of uh, stuff that a lot of people were up to at the time. Yeah, and he kind of li- anyway. like he was twenty five when he came back from the war, and he could. So, so he he's so when all of this killing is going on, this mm. is formative. So he's yeah. between the age of twenty and twenty five. Yeah. He's doing all this stuff. That's yeah, crazy. And then like if you think about that now, like when I was twenty five, I barely tied my shoelaces. You know what <laughs> I mean? <laughs> But uh, so he came, he, he comes back anyway to this world. And what he said was he couldn't go back to normal life. He, oh, he had to be outside. He couldn't be in an office, you know, yeah. uh, on, on things. He missed the thrill of things. There's one example where like he, he used to get in fights, a bit like his father for argument's sake. So once he actually fought a kangaroo. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And it's a great story, actually, because it actually make, made, he met his first wife after. So. <laughs> He was outside. Wait, so he must have won then. Yeah, well, essentially well, people would bet. Nurse looking after him. Like just the image of this, and it's a pity it wasn't in the film, but a kangaroo with boxing gloves. Yeah, I mean, I think that might have been, that might have stretched uh, credulity even for Netflix if they... If they even with that, the de-aging know. technology, yeah, like yeah, yeah, the CGI yeah, yeah. kangaroo. Yeah. But basically he fought, he, a lot of people <laughs> would have challenged this kangaroo and he got up and he was drunk and he started kicking the shit out of the kangaroo but he kept getting hit in the back of the head. And he was like, what the fuck's going on here? And he kept, so he turned around and he kept looking at the ref and he thought it was the ref. So then he started kicking the shit out of the ref, but it was actually the kangaroo whipping him with his tail <laughs> at the back of the head every time, you know? And then he got arrested and all these things. So he had a few wild years. That incident though did lead him to getting married. So he married a, Wait, an Irish no, girl. I feel like you oh, skipped a step. Whoa, whoa, yeah. whoa. <laughs> he yeah. fights a kangaroo, kicks the shit out of the referee, uh, gets arrested and then married. Yeah, that's, so Mary, that's, that's, that Mary Letty, Mary Letty was in the crowd. Okay, okay and she okay. saw him, and he basically went around, asked her on a date. Blah blah blah. The rest is history. Another another Irish uh, Irish American, I assume. Uh, she yeah, Mary Letty. She would have been based Irish. Based yeah. on her name, yeah. Um, Catholic. They had three daughters together uh, yeah. in the in this particular marriage. So that's where we are, basically coming up to when Frank starts to make his first steps into. He's married. He's got major post-traumatic stress uh, disorder and he's basically doing odd jobs, robbing money here and there and that Fight, type of fighting thing. Fighting kangaroos. I- exactly, yeah. We just saw Frank, our hero, if you will, meet with Russ Buffalino, um, two parts of the major tr- trinity of the Irishman, and we'll yeah. get into Hoffa later. But Unholy so, trinity. The unholy trinity, indeed. Yeah. So from this meeting between Frank and Russ, uh, what springs forth and what's going on with Russ at this time? Yeah, so uh, Russell Buffalino, as Mark told me, not Buffalina, right? So sorry about that, <laughs> yeah. Italian. Uh, born in 1903 in Sicily, known as the Quiet Don. Yeah. Uh, what I find interesting about Russell is that Sheehan, who was obviously, Frank Sheeran, excuse me, who was obviously a very good friend of him, uh, described Bo- uh, Russell as the most like... Uh, Marlon Brando's portrayal of a godfather in the film The Godfather. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard this. The too, quite yeah. understated uh you he's know quite calm. calm. For, for, for a guy who's ordering murders and stuff, he's he's pretty chilled out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Everything was honor and uh, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And ev- in, in like just deadly but also extremely courteous and yeah, this personable type of thing. as well. I mean, that's yeah. how he's depicted. Where you know nobody, like it, as shown in uh, the film, like um, nobody really knew you know what was going on. But he had a finger in everything. Everyone yeah. was always yeah. coming around his uh, sewing business or whatever. There's a lot. There's a lot made about um, when Frank's driving him around. 
he's always got to stop here. He's always got to stop there because he's got business in er- everywhere, and everyone treats him the right way, and he treats everyone the right way. And yeah, and a lot of the thing we just a short note on is that it, one of the things that made the mafia different was that they did a lot of their business personally. Oh, so a lot of yeah, was sure. that's why their phone calls are so cryptic. So they won't. That's actually why you have phrases like our, our friend. Yes, they don't, they don't the little guy, the little you know? guy, yeah. Our, yeah, our little friend in uh, our little friend in Buffalo. Yeah, this type of yeah, thing. Yeah. So, because a lot of the, it was it was all done kind of in, um, I suppose, in person, and the idea was that they couldn't be they that there was less ears essentially. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know? Uh, but yeah, no, Russell. The thing with him was he was uh, his territory really as a boss was Pennsylvania, upstate New York, uh, Buffalo. But he also would have had interests, as Mark alluded to earlier, about in Canada, because it was on the border. Yeah. He would have had interests in Florida. And as we will see, him and a lot of the mafia generation of this time in the mid-50s, um, they had interests in Cuba. Yeah. And so, for example, Russell had a racetrack and a casino near Havana. Yeah. Um. And they all had this. Basically, Cuba was like this sort of... Uh, it was like a playground for, yeah. for the criminal... Criminally minded and, and wealthy, the guys I mentioned earlier in the in the commission, uh, including the 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 uh, Luciano's advisors, the Jewish guys, uh, Meyer Lansky and Bugsy Siegel, these are guys who've got money invested into Cuba too. Mm. We mentioned Boardwalk Empire earlier, and Nucky Thompson in the final season of that. This it's after the uh, the collapse of the of the of the um, prohibition, so that's that's yeah. gone, and and a lot of a lot of the action, the early episodes of the final season take place in Cuba and that's that's a reference to all the mob money that's swe- that's uh, swelling around around Cuba at this time yeah mm. and I mean that obviously stops at some point right a big stops, issue it stops when Castro makes it stop right <laughs> yeah. Is, yeah so like uh, we can get into this but wanting a really important part of Russell's life as a boss was his hatred of Castro and yeah. a lot of his big motivations for his overall overarching strategy related to how he interacted with the government and all that was motivated by his desire to get back his Cuban properties and to to turn Cuba back into an American playground essentially you know yeah. and so you're you're alluding then to to uh mob interaction with the the government so mafia interaction with the government and this is leading up to Bay of Pigs yeah that comes on uh that comes on later there too is essentially uh, they would have uh had involvement there when I suppose we'll have to talk about the Kennedys as well sure, and why yeah. that yeah. came up. At this time though, I suppose he 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 support he would have supported basically JFK's election. So in nineteen fifty nine, Batista, who was basically uh, a mob man running Cuba yeah. for once. His name yeah. he was a president, but he was so run the by the president the president of Cuba who's the, the arch nemesis of Castro and, and uh Che Guevara and, and the and the, all all the all the, the revolutionary, re- revolutionary generation, generation yeah. they basically Castro would have uh, confiscated all the mob lands. He would have thrown the mobsters out. Closed the casinos too, right? Closed closed casinos, all this type of thing. And they they used to make uh, combined. I think the um, the mafia, uh, the Italian mafia, made a million dollars a day in Cuba. Yeah, it was a major though. major loss of income. Um, so later they did support JFK's election simply. Because they believed that by supporting him, they would have uh, control over the president uh, 
because they had connections to his father who was originally involved was in Prohibition. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, so this got all kind of getting off a little bit off point, but his main motivation in life, Russell, was the control of his family and essentially getting his properties back. So in, so, in so to be clear, what, what we're saying here is Buffalino and his contemporaries in the Mafia are supportive of JFK's run at the presidency because they felt their connection to his father, Joseph Kennedy, who a lot of them knew uh, from illegal activities, including bootlegging in the earlier days. They felt like they would have some level of influence then over the American president who could then influence the situation in Cuba. Who could then take back Cuba, which we will see they attempted to do. Yeah, so this, to give a a more specific time frame, uh, the revolution in Cuba, that would have been in the 50s, right? Late 50s. Batista fell in 59. That's when he threw in the towel. Yeah, so that was going on for a while there, but this coincides, of course, with the Appalachian meeting and everything that we talked yes, about there, yes. where everything before this was a playground. I mean, the um, like the U.S. was also a playground in a sense. There wasn't as much interference, and then they're thrown out of Cuba pretty much, um, and at the same time have all these issues the, back home as well. The, the main the main point on the agenda for the Appalachian meeting is what the hell are we going to do about Cuba? Oh, I mm. see. Okay, so it's a lot of it's in flux. The other thing to to note about this time is that this is when uh, Russell and Frank began to respect each other and they began to do jobs for each other, do each other favours, as they said. And this is where the famous line, I hear you you paint houses, came in, because essentially Russell would use uh, Frank Sheaton as a as someone to handle problems for him. So, and so the, the yeah. scene, in, the scene in the movie that depicts this is this: what really happened? They're they're sitting out for 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 dinner, and Buffalino hands him the phone. So and this it's Jimmy Hoffa, and, and this says, is hey. Jimmy Hoffa. So this is the last part of the trinity of these three okay. men. So and Jimmy Hoffa is played by Al Pacino. Obviously, he says, brilliantly. I, I hear you paint yeah. houses, and Frank Sheeran says what? Yeah, Frank she- Sheeran says, and I I do my own carpentry too. <laughs> Uh, so I get rid of the bodies. I get rid of the bodies too. <laughs> yeah, so, so that, this is an example this is Mongo, of it. mob lingo that exactly, we're talking yeah, about. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, these these two these three men then are connected. Their whole lives are connected from then on. Um, we should probably talk a little bit about Jimmy Hoffa now. Maybe yeah, yeah. I would like that because yeah. I mean, as someone coming into this, it's I am the Latina nurse at the end of this film uh, going like, who, who, who's this Jimmy Hoffa guy? I have no clue. I've never heard of this and Hoffa guy. I mean, guy, it's yeah. even like mentioned in uh, the film, like ask any young person now, they have no idea who this person is, but mm. he's one of the most important people in the country. So Jimmy Hoffa getting into his background, um, he's, he's the head of the Teamsters Union. And again, the close connection between mobs, uh, the mob and the unions it's just one of these things where you go, I guess it makes sense that the US doesn't believe in organized labor. Like, where I'm from, thinking of a union is not the same thing at all as, yeah. like, oh, no, of course there's uh, mafia involvement. Like, what? <laughs> the mo- I mean, the, mo- the mob um, have, have... There's always been some level of connection between the mob and unions, certainly in New York. Yeah. So when I was talking earlier about the, the formation of the gangs and the organization of the gangs, like those organizational skills were obviously very handy for, for union work. So you always had some level of, you might want to call it infiltration, but you always have some level of crossover between the organized crime and, and unions. You'll also see it in another HBO series, uh, The Wire. You, know, yeah. you have the, the unions involved in, the, in, the, in the, the drug trade there. That was That was pretty prevalent in New York too. So mm. I mean, the idea that a character is amoral... Uh, as as Hoffa seems to be being involved as the leader of a union 
that's that kind of stands to stands to reason, stands to, to to make a bit of sense in the American context. Yeah, and the other thing I just wanted to mention, if we forgot to say about Russell, which made him quite different than a lot of what you would consider modern mafia, is that he didn't believe in the drugs trade, like you were saying, Mark earlier. Old school uh, Sicilian, old school not, Sicilian, not the drugs, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, but Jimmy Hoffa essentially deterred uh, Rung of this unholy uh, trinity. When you, you were asking about the Teamsters, Jake, did you look into the Teamsters in any way? I or? mean, uh, they drive trucks, so I know that now. Like, yeah. that's what that means. Does that count as looking into it, Michael? Well, like, Hoffa actually had a quote which he said to Sheehan, apparently, and it was, uh, if you get it, a truck brought it to you. Yeah, yeah. And which this is, is so simple. In the in the film as well, where he's like, if you got it, a truck brought it to you. Great speeches as well, I mean, as depicted in the film. And because of that, uh, it was described, basically the Teamsters, there was about two million members. Uh, essentially, they were the transport workers. Uh, he, Hoffa had basically come up as he originally, when he was, uh, he was born in 1913, so he's a bit older than Frank, uh, but he would have organized he was always working with the strike so he would have had organized his first strike when he was 19 years old okay <laughs> and he was basically someone who used to unload fruit and veg lorries. yeah but he through his hard graft and because he was such a charismatic great speaker he was able to convince uh, people to go along with him um so he kind of rose through the ranks of the union yeah, and, and that played a big part in consolidating all the different unions, like, in the actual growth. The fact that there's millions of people, it seems like an impossibly big and powerful organization. And that is, in large part, thanks to Jimmy Hoffa putting yeah, that together. exactly. And he, what, the way he put it was, was the working man in America is always shortchanged. Yeah. And he, he knew that if there was, wasn't unity within the unions that the... Bosses, as he called them, the likes of Henry Ford, who yeah, believed yeah. that... Um, the captains of industry, these guys. These yeah. guys who believed that the union unionism, uh, the, the the founding of unions was the worst thing to ever happen and this type of thing. Uh, he, he basically brought them together and he didn't care because he knew that unity was his biggest weapon. So as long as the strikes couldn't be broken and as long as he had complete control over millions of people and he could say, lay down your... Uh, tools tomorrow you're not going to work he knew he could freeze and bring the country to a halt at any time yeah. so he was basically he was called the most powerful man in the country next to the president yeah it's and, an, ex- it's an yeah. extraordinarily powerful position for mm. for a guy to be on and and, he, and he's in that largely true force of personality really yeah. isn't he uh he did like the thing with with him it's it is shown in the movie like he he believed and he's he's quoted as saying that the end justifies the means, you know? So yeah. he didn't mind using murder, bombing, arson, whatever yeah, so here's the was. part where I'm like, all of the first stuff you just said sounds great, you know? Yeah. Unity, You're like, that's yeah. all legal. That's all legal stuff. Yeah, no, and, 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 murder. and just like the actual end goals being, you know, they sound quite decent of uh, being able to yeah. give the working man a decent wage and all these but things. But the thing is, this Sounds is like socialism he, to me. Yeah. It's yes, not going to fly in America. Lovely, lovely socialism. <laughs> but people did did love him and he did have genuine popularity like he was as famous he was quite he, like he was as famous as elvis <laughs> and then the beatles between 1955 and 75 everyone yeah. knew who he was everyone knew his voice because you'd often hear him on the radio yeah he'd be on tv he'd be doing all his clever lines all that type of thing what was the clever line you were saying earlier mark about uh, i might have faults Oh, but being wrong ain't one of them. Exactly. <laughs> you know, so he, he had all these things going for him. 
but his main thing was in terms of he didn't mind using violence, but it was to keep unity. Yeah. He, um, so he used it against his own people if, if one local uh, union was trying to break away from his national he'd union. He'd stomp it out. Yeah. He'd stomp it yeah, out. Yeah. And he'd use the likes of Frank Sheeran to do that. So that's where basically Sheeran, um, Buffalini, uh, Buffalino, excuse me, and Jimmy Hoffa, that's where they all come together because they all need each other to a certain extent. And Sheeran in, in, uh, sure. in many ways is the bridge between the two guys. You yeah. Know? I mean, come on. Uh, we know this from my one-sentence summary. Uh, an aging hitman looks back on entanglements linked between the mafia and the prolific union leader. Uh, now I sound like a 1920s uh, newspeaker. <laughs> Don't know what's going on there. But uh, anyway, so we have Jimmy Hoffa, incredibly powerful man. Like what you were describing again. Sounds like good goals. Do the end just justify the means? Not in the end. Not really. Not with how things ended up, I'd say. Because it seems like at one point he was just lending... I mean, lending money illegally to uh, the mafia. Well, see, no, this is the thing. Like, his his power came from the, the fact that he was head of the Teamster Union. So basically, they had a massive pension fund. And this was worth, at the end, when uh, Sheeran uh, was leaving, leaving this crowd and leaving this scene, he said it was worth about a billion. And essentially, the mafia, over time, grew to see that pension fund, the Teamster's pension fund. So used... So for a trucker to retire with his family, yeah, they saw that as their own private bank. It's the easiest way of putting it. So they would and use. So this this is how Hoffa starts to get into hot water with some of these mafia bosses. Disputes over the use of the pension fund. Exactly. So he didn't about. mind lending money, but yeah. he always got it back. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but what ex- essentially happened to Hoffa is that he went to, because he was so dodgy. Really, he eventually went to prison. And because he went to prison, he couldn't control the, his right. his 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 union as much. There was a new boss put in. Well, that would uh, be Fitz, Fitz in the film, exactly. depicted as a sort of bumbling guy who likes to play golf and and lets the mafia and anyone who likes to use the pension fund not only as a bank but as an actual piggy bank. Exactly, and the thing was that Fitz didn't get the money back. Yeah, and at the end of the day, so he's mismanaged the situation while Hoffa's fuming in prison. Yeah, and Hoffa was corrupt. Like, he would have taken kickbacks and payments and all this type of thing. But the thing was, he did believe in the union and, like, he did radically improve the conditions of the workers. Like, he got them uh, sick leave. He got them uh, pensions. He got them all these practical holiday pay. These things they never had. Setting aside the ones yeah. that were presumably murdered by Frank on his command. Exactly. But, but the, the general yeah, the, truck the, driver. This is the, uh, yeah. the, this is the yeah, say what you like about Mussolini, but the trains arrived on time still. So. <laughs> this is 100%. <laughs> but the reason he was so popular within his organization and he got k- continually voted back in was because of the practical benefits. Because he was he actually effective as a leader as yeah, well. It's just yeah, the yeah. way he went about it was horrific. Yeah. You know? So this is the ends justified the means that you were talking about earlier. Yeah. That's, that's what we're talking about here. Um, so yeah, his biggest Hoffa's biggest problem and his biggest rival was actually the Kennedys. Uh, now his right. hatred for the Kennedys is incredible. Uh, so essentially, as we Mark was talking about earlier, basically the mafia decided to roll in between behind JFK uh, election because, because they believed it would give them control back over Cuba. I don't know why, but the the, 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 yeah. Kennedy, the Kennedy. Family connection to organized crime is, 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 is one that's long and storied, like we mentioned about uh, Joseph Kennedy earlier. Why would, they, um, why would they get control back over Cuba? Well, Cuba's obviously a hop out of the Cold War. Mm. Um, the Cuban Missile Crisis. 
if you're American and you're working in foreign policy, the idea that you would have a, a, a social, well, I was going to say socialist, communist revolution in Cuba, that's completely untenable. But that also just happens to play into the hands of the mafia who had all their money there under Batista. So if JFK is running uh, for president, he's a guy who you think you can influence and he's making all the right noises about Cuba. You're going to back this guy because chances and they are. Do. And they do. And they roll in and there's allegations that the mafia in the US essentially use dead people's votes to get Kennedy elected in swing states. And how allegedly, conf- allegedly, yeah. allegedly, allegedly. How confirmed alleged. is that? Like It's alleged. Yeah. alleged. <laughs> okay, it's been yeah. alleged. All right. Just in, ca- just in case the, the current Joseph Kennedy, who I believe is a congressman from Massachusetts, runs for president, which, let's be honest, he probably is going to do at some point, and becomes president, and happens to hear this podcast, we're alleging these things. Mm. Exactly, yeah. Um, also, we'd love a review on Apple Podcasts, <laughs> uh, Johnny. Yeah, yeah. How's that, Joe? Um, um, but the, so the JFK subsequently was elected. Yeah. But what the what they didn't anticipate was that his brother Robert Kennedy was essentially holier than thou. Holier Robert than Kennedy, thou. Maybe, he maybe. was he was immediately appointed by his brother as the Attorney General, so the most the, the most powerful lawyer in the U.S. A beautiful piece of nepotism there. Yeah, that's you wouldn't get away with it now. Uh, well, maybe, yeah, you would under a certain circumstances. Uh, well, can, can, anyone, can anyone in the room yeah. tell me what Ivanka Trump's job actually is? No, you're right, actually, and Jared Kushner and all that. Yeah, no, you're right. He's going to solve think. the Middle East, this Kushner yeah. guy. Um, uh, 100%, yeah. So, uh, but, but he basically, so Robert Kennedy became, he, he was on a moral crusade. He wanted to, to expose and take down organized crime. And he also wanted to get rid of Hoffa, who he considered uh, like a devil or a cancer at the heart of America. He considered both of these things. He actually set up a squad called the Get Hoffa Squad. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Subtle, well, uh, su- subtle yeah, stuff yeah. there from, from Kennedy. Just so I'm clear, like, uh, uh, I'm not that. Uh, I don't know that much about American politics, probably much like most people in the US. Uh, but the Attorney General is like the head lawyer of the yeah, president's staff. He would staff. be in most, in most republics. So in Ireland, he'd be the attorney. Mm-hmm. The, he'd be the head lawyer. So that's where the government goes for legal advice. Okay, but this would be different, obviously, from say the Supreme Court, which is like legislature at the highest level. Yeah, but this is the executive branch with branch within that. It's the legal arm or whatever. Exactly. But yes, the thing that's is exactly. The, yes. Yeah, but Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, as the Attorney General, could direct the whole resources of the FBI against the mob. The entire, the entire no. federal government's resources. And he did. Yeah. Now and it's a, it's the Get Hoffa Squad. It's not the Get Mafia Squad. So. Well, he saw the two as linked. Well, they are. Uh, yeah. I mean, allegedly, and uh, they seem we're, they seem al- we're we're alleging a link between the teams. Yeah. Or yeah the so, but the interesting thing is, so the the mafia supported him, um, uh, JFK, to get into power, which led to this. Um, but Hoffa uh, gave money to Nixon. Yeah. So yes. we get it. That's that's what happens later. But essentially, what happens is JFK is elected. He does try and invade Cuba. He fucks it up because he doesn't give any U.S. air support. Yeah, JFK is 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 one of these interesting figures because he's regarded as a, like a, a kind of like a sainted man, this heroic kind of American president. JFK was an absolutely horrendous individual. Like, just he's I, I, honestly now he was one of the worst people to ever hold the office, and he was a dreadful president. But for some reason, people loved him. Well. The reason is because he was a celebrity. But and because he was killed as well. And because he was him. killed and he was young and, he, you know, you did the good-looking wife and all that kind of stuff. And then his brother, the Attorney General, was then also killed later. Exactly. Right. So he might have been better than Nixon, though, to be fair. 
Not much better. All right. Well, the thing was anyway, so they attempted to do it, and this was called the Invasion of the Bay of Pigs. Now, the mafias, this was admitted 10 years later after the Bay of Pigs. So that was in 1961. Essentially, it's the invasion of Cuba Cuba by supposed exiles from Cuba, anti-communists. But it was essentially an American coup d'etat. They tried to take over Cuba. Is this, and I hate to keep asking, but is this alleged or is this actual? We don't oh, this? no, it's, it's in, there was a commission oh, no, 10 this, years later. Yeah, no, yeah. This, this happened. The Bay of Pigs invasion yeah. happened. CIA yeah, yeah but I mean, mean yeah. about the involvement, because the mm. way they show it in I the think film. Kind the involvement of, even is admitted now, isn't yeah, it? No, yeah, it, yeah. It, there was a thing called the Church Committee about ten, in the mid-70s, mm. and it investigated the Bay of Pigs, because it was a debacle. Yeah. And essentially, the CIA admitted, yeah, there was mob mob involvement. So basically, there was in, mob involvement, but also CIA involvement. So basically, yeah. So there was a thing called Operation Mongoose, mm-hmm. and the the that was to the idea was to that the mob would poison Castro before yeah. the Bay of Pigs, and then the invasion would take place. None of it worked out. It all went to shit, basically. <laughs> um, but this made the mafia very, very angry with. The Kennedys, because all of a sudden, their whole reason for voting, trying to get the Kennedys elected is gone. They failed in Cuba. Yeah. And they're, they're, they're pros- trying to prosecute them. Yeah, it almost f- seems like because that failed, they're like, oh, well, in that case, we're going to turn more towards the mafia, the people who helped uh, get me elected. Well, this said, and then, see, this is where now the, the, the conspiracy around JFK's assassination comes in. And this is alleged. This isn't, there isn't. There's circumstantial evidence. Frank Sheeran, our friend here, claims he brought guns to a certain place. It's not. He said he brought three high-powered rifles to a certain airbase. All these type of things. But these but wait, are is all that, alleged. Uh, is that the bit in the film where he brings that before the Bay of Pigs, you mean? You're not talking about the JFK it, assassination? This is a different one. He brings a separate bag <laughs> okay. with rifles in it. So there is... It, Frank Sheeran in the book alleges that the mafia basically decided to kill... JFK and his argument was that they would used the old Sicilian um, as Mark was talking earlier the old Sicilian uh, motto which was to kill a dog you don't cut off its tail you cut off its head so they really wanted to get rid of Rob Bobby Kennedy who was trying to persecute them but they knew that once JFK was gone once they got rid of him Bobby had no more power it's interesting because in the film I guess uh, the problem seems to be more that uh, the Kennedys are going after Hoffa rather than yeah. the Mafia. Um, but, yeah, I mean, who knows exactly what happened there. It's it's. Well, know. they were going after the mob as well. They were going... Yeah. Like Bobby, Bobby Kennedy was setting up wiretaps. He was doing all these things against the mob. So it was it was a two-pronged attack, essentially, you know? Well, and we don't... We usually stick to the facts and such, mm. but just based on reading the book, based on your background information mm. on this, what do you guys think? What actually, you know, was there mafia involvement in the death of JFK? Um, in, entirely possible, I would say. Maybe even probable. Mm. Uh, if 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 there wasn't, in fact, I I would say at least considered by the by the authorities. Yeah, and I would say, like I like you said, there's this is in fact, but you have to look who benefits with these situations after JFK's assassination. Um. The hunt for them. There's a new. There, there's Lyndon Johnson. He he has a new attorney general. Eventually, he backs off completely. He doesn't go after the mafia anymore. Uh, Hoffa, when when JFK died, said uh, Bobby Kennedy is just another liar now. 
basically he doesn't and that's in the film i think yeah he, he yeah, yeah that well. one isn't there yeah you know that he doesn't have any power he was only powerful because of his brother and now he's gone so i don't know nobody knows and uh there's more intelligent people than us that have looked through this and haven't been able to come to a conclusion so i'm not going to stake a bet on it but it's murky enough for them to be involved in it yeah and let's see so i mean Hoffa still it was earlier that same year 1963 he was uh in well no yeah he was indicted and then it was in March that he was convicted so yeah didn't really work out for him either way he was still convicted to prison yeah he was convicted uh, for jury tampering he was dodgy uh or as and I sentencing the 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 uh, judge actually said, you stand convicted of tampering with the soul of the nation. Because um, he Dramatic. was... Dramatic. Exactly. Dramatic stuff. But he, every, every, jur- every jury member he tried to he tried to actually corrupt, he tried to actually uh, spend money, he tried to you right. know, buy them off. Yeah, yeah. This. So uh, essentially all that anyway brings us to Hoffa goes to jail. The mob has a little bit of respite from uh, the... from... from investigations from the FBI and all that type of thing uh, and they go back to business as usual trying to use the pension fund as a as their as, a bank. as their bank essentially yeah. so what happens then what ha- why was Jimmy Hoffa assassinated or disappeared we don't know if he was assassinated well I, I just want to touch on before that yeah. so at this point just to get the time frames right Frank Sheeran has been with uh, you know, been with the mafia for a number of years yeah. at this point. And obviously the story, it's a mob story, but it's also about the actual, um, the aging. Like it's, mm. I think that he sold it to the actors, some of whom were not willing to do another mob thing. I think that was Pesci. Yeah. It was like, I don't want to do like... Well, Pesci's retired. I yeah. mean, this, this is, you're, you're coming out of retirement and you're like, you want me to come out of retirement to do another mob movie? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he basically sold it like, no, it's going to be different. And the way that it is differently put together, it's an aging man looking back on his life yeah. and the actual deaths and everything, it, it, they become minuscule compared to the uh, like the the fall that comes to everyone everyone yeah. just dies eventually yeah, yeah. Yeah, in prison yeah. or get shot in the head or whatever. as we said in the film it shows at like at the at the opening reel a lot of the characters they were mentioning it gave the year they got murdered as yeah. well yeah. to kind of deglamorize it's, it. it's one yeah that's, that's what i was going to say there's one mm-hmm. thing you would say about the movies it, it does not glamorize the mob no. It, like, and there, there is a, there is a, an element um, of that. I think ju- just in Hollywood and in American culture generally, well, probably Western culture mm. generally, this kind of, the, you know, the kind of the admiration for the sly, the sly kind of you can get away with it kind of thing, and the yeah. mob is the ultimate expression of that. So I think even with shows like The Sopranos, part of the the draw to that is you get to see people who live outside of the rules, and it's kind of that power fantasy, right? Yeah, yeah. But this movie doesn't really doesn't really do that. It shows yeah. that for you know, the slimy kind of mm. grime that it really is and that f- that, that Frank Sheeran is clearly a, a monster, really. Oh, he is, yeah. And and I, like we said, he was shaped by his childhood, his war experience. What the crux of the movie comes to, it, to is his choice, though, because essentially Jimmy Hoffa, he has to choose between Jimmy Hoffa or Russell Ofelino. Yeah, there's that great scene when... Sheeran is speaking to, to Hoffa and Sheeran is now being made aware by Buffalino that the commission have decided that Hoffa's got to go and he has this conversation with him where he's basically just it's what it is J- Jimmy Jimmy, listen to me it's it's yeah. what it is yeah. and Hoffa's just 
nah, they, they, they can't kill me. Like, a, yeah, he, he, he they just, wouldn't dare. They wouldn't, they wouldn't dare. dare. I'm yeah. far too powerful. He's yeah, like, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. Jimmy, listen to me. It's, it's what it is. It's what it is. Uh, but Buffalino, Buffalino later, uh, Russ says, says to him, so he, look, we did everything we could for this man. Yes. And he also says, Russell says to Frank uh, in the book, now, this is obviously this part of the film. It's the end of the film. But it's also the murky part of the book. And historically, we don't know really what happened on the 30th of July, 1975. But but Jimmy Hoffa hasn't been seen since, essentially. Um, well, Sheeran, as he said, he does do his own carpentry. So. He does do his own carpentry. And what the reason, just to touch on it before we go, is that essentially the reason Jimmy Hoffa angered the mob was that he, got, he was in prison. He lost control. But when he got out of prison, he had such a loud mouth, which we all suffer from here. Huh? But he had such a loud mouth that he wanted to take back control of the Teamster Union he had lost control yeah. of. The problem with that was he kept shouting about it and saying, uh, you know, how I I have stuff on everybody I, here I to know make something them hang. about everyone. Exactly. The mafia cannot yeah. let that stand. Remember mm. that this is not a guy who's been sw- swore the oath of Omerta. He's not made. Yeah. And I mean, another thing that's left out of the film is I read about Jimmy Hoffa. The deal, he basically struck a deal with Nixon, gave Nixon loads of money yeah. and Nixon let him out of prison. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he got a pardon, presidential yes, pardon. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But there was a rule in there that said you can't run for leadership of any organized sort of workforce at all. Until 1980, which was like five years in the future or yeah. something like that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, or, well, yeah, I, 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 did, I missed that bit. But mm. I just know that he was content. He said, I never agreed to that. So, yeah. like, after he was basically pardoned. <laughs> yeah. He's like, I'm, well, I'm, I'm just doing what I want anyway. Yeah. I'm going to yeah. do it anyway. <laughs> it's too late. You um, let me out. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so in the film, it's depicted as him sort of running to get back control. It seems a bit less likely when you read into the historical context. But he also, he starts shouting about the mafia, saying, he starts talking about the, that his that the current head of the Teamsters Union, so his rival Fitz, yeah, yeah, Fitz who he had originally put in. Yeah. He starts saying that he's always oh, lending money to the mafia. Yeah. He was saying this out loud in the newspapers. Yeah, yeah. And he but this, also is, this said is the he was desperate gonna, this is the desperate old man who once had power snatching to try and get it back. Exactly. But yeah. he also was saying that he was going to take back the loans and the collateral and all this. So this spooked the mafia. Yeah. This spooked Russell Buffalino. This spooked them all because they fred they were afraid they were gonna lose their piggy bank. Just the f- even just the fact that he's being so loud. Yeah. Like yeah. the mafia is, that's not what they're, you yeah. know, just, sh- yeah. just shut up. That's yeah, what their yeah, whole yeah. thing is, just like say nothing, you know? Yeah, and he would have disappeared, as we'll get into in 75. And then, like you said, at the start of all this, Mark, in the 80s, everything kind of gets fucked up anyway, as far as uh, yeah, public knowledge about yeah, what's going on. There's some high profile arrests in the 80s and, and some people flip, basically. Yeah. It, and it's like that's, that scene to reference to Sopranos again um, with Johnny Sack. You know, he's on trial and, and, the, and the, the judge says to him, or the, the prosecutor says to him, um, are you a member of an organized crime group referred to as Il Cosa Nostra? And he says, yes. And, you know, it cuts to Leotardo. He's like, no, you never admit to the existence of the thing. <laughs> 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 Won't even say what it is, but the thing, the thing. Uh, yeah, and so that remains a mystery to this day. Frank she- Sheeran has admitted to the killing, but so has 14 other people. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of people claim they've done it, yeah. The, the thing that makes me believe that Sharon might have done it is because, as is shown in the film, he falls out with his daughter, Peggy. He had four daughters, two different wives. Um, and his daughter, Peggy, is I think who was his oldest or his second. Yeah, I think she was the oldest. Yeah. She mm-hmm. never talked to him since the day Jimmy 
Hoffa went missing because she he was like an uncle to her. In in the in yeah. the book as well, yeah. there's a, there's a reference that the the author makes to speaking to Hoffa's son and mm. and. Um, they name a bunch of people in the, uh, 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 that, that like Hoffa was alleged to have gotten in the car with, and he's like, yeah, no, he wouldn't have gotten in the car with son, him. Chucky or Chucky, Chucky, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, he wouldn't got in the car with him. He wouldn't mm. have gotten in the car yeah. with him. And then he says, Sheeran. He's like, yeah, he'd get in the car with Sheeran. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the the thing with this is was that Frank says that the decision to paint the house had been made, and that was it. Yeah, and it's that, what it's what it is, Jimmy. It's and, exa- it is. and he he had to choose between Russell and. Uh, Jimmy Hoffa and he believed that Russell had saved his life for many years at one time there had been seven contracts out in his head yeah. and Russell yeah, yeah. sorted it and he also knew that if he didn't kill uh, if he didn't kill Jimmy Hoffa even though he was one of his best friends that he would have been killed yeah um, so I, be- I think there's some truth in it simply because if he wanted to re-establish a, a relationship with his daughter in later years, why would he freely admit that he had killed the man? The very reason that their relationship had yeah fell destroyed. apart. Yeah, yeah. But as we said, that case has yet to be solved still, and that's 2020 now. So, yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> everyone um, is going to think that Frank did it. Those 13 other or 14 other people can. Uh, they may as well not have confessed because there is now a 150 million budget movie uh, that tells this side of the story, and yeah. this is this this is how people remember history. For it's sure. not the winners that write history; no. it's the filmmakers. At yeah. least that's our motto here yeah. at Real History. <laughs> yeah. um, just before we wrap up, so the the disappearance, like in the film, Chucky, the foster son of Jimmy Hoffa, is driving the car, which was kind of confusing to me because uh, I was like, oh, so he's he's depicted as not being in on it or maybe in on it we don't know in the book it's like he's an innocent bystander Frank says that he essentially is being used as another way of softening Jimmy Hoffa so that he would Mm. get into the car essentially yeah because he was he he felt safe around Frank and his you wouldn't expect it it's his his best friend or one of his best friends essentially and his stepson and Frank even said like one of the people he felt most sorry for was Hoffa's stepson Chucky, Chucky yeah. uh, because he was involved uh, allegedly involved in, in, in inadvertently yeah. allegedly yeah. involved in the well, death and apparently the fish bit is actually accurate yeah. there was yeah, a delivery yeah. of a fish yeah. you know very as far as the, the book film. is concerned again yeah this could be the adult memories of a uh, regretful man uh, you know in his 80s because essentially Frank did go on to live until he was 83, he died. He loved The Sopranos. He died just I love in that. Yeah. Yeah. He, yeah, he would watch The Sopranos. Yeah. He, he was aware of it anyway. He never really said he watched it, but he did no. t- refer to it in the book, and he would say, like, oh, that's where New Jer- That's where The Sopranos is, New Jersey, you know, this type yeah. of thing. Yeah, North Jersey. I know North Jersey. Yeah, yeah <laughs> so there is this continuation there, definitely, you know? So Hoffa disappears and mm. is probably killed. I mean, he's definitely mm. killed. Um probably by frank possibly or at least someone like in connection with all of that maybe frank is just you know working from his own motivations to glorify himself for whatever weird reasons he never got that meeting with melfi who knows what's going on in his head (laughs) fbi agents have said that they believe frank did it you know or had some involvement in it but it's mm. still never proved. And I think it's it's fair to say as well like Hoffa's family they're they're sure sharing right I mean Hoffa's daughter Hoffa's son they're, 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 they think, look, it was Frank. I believe that pretty much wraps up everything we need to get into. Of course, you can find more at showswhatyouknow.com of both of our podcasts. Before that, there's there's just one more thing I want to say. What's that? Cut to black. <laughs>